0: Thank you all so much for worshiping. Thank you for giving to our church this morning. And I hope you have a Bible. And if you do, I'd love for you to open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, tucked away and kind of in the middle of the New Testament toward the latter half. Not too hard to find. If you find 1 Timothy, you're close, right? Just a few pages away. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. You know, men and women are created equally in the image of God, equally loved by God. But each gender, both genders, uh, possess gifts and purposes that are unique from one another. And the biblical way of saying this, or the theological way um, that has been kind of... organized to to describe uh, the the, the gift that God gives to men and the gift that God gives to women and and what makes them distinct um, is that men and women are complementary to one another, that we complement one another, that we are distinct, uh, we are different, uh, but we are complementary, as in the image of God is not complete without both of us. Uh, of course, we understand that in the, in the gift of marriage and the role of marriage and the family, um, family set up and, and even in church leadership, that there is uh, a, a distinctness between men and women, but there's a way that we complement each other. The idea um, is all about celebrating the uniqueness and the colorful qualities that God has given to each distinct gender. Now, now women, not exclusive to mothers, but of course, including our moms, have a gift that is unrivaled when it comes to their grace Uh, Their passion to nurture and care, their rationale and their earnestness, God chose to use women as the template for his church. Uh, The vessel for whom Christ died, uh, the the church is compared to the bride of Christ, and and that's the analogy used, that the church is the bride uh, of Christ, and and that Christ is the husband pouring himself out for her, Um, and that is meant to bolster the inerrant value of women and the devotion that, uh, that they deserve. So to all of our moms, all of our ladies, those who hurt today because of lost loved ones or a struggle, um, you are very special. The Bible says you are chosen, you are so important, and we're all better because of you, uh, and and we owe you our love. So to my wife, Lindsay, to my mom, my sisters, my grandmother, my in-laws, to all of you who bear those same same wreaths of brilliance um, from the bottom of my heart, um, and I think the church would echo this, we thank you. We thank you. This morning. So um, I want to give all of our ladies um, uh, just our deepest gratitude and our deepest appreciation. Uh, On your way out this morning, um, there will be a gift for you, um, something that I think you'll, uh, I think it'll be a, a, a nice treat. You might want to save it for after lunch, though, so um, keep that in mind when, when, when uh, you're headed out. Uh, there'll be uh, a table set up, and there'll be something uh, something sweet for you to uh, to take with you. So uh, on that note, uh, I would love for you to uh, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 2 Timothy 1, a passage of Scripture that I think is the perfect text for a day like today. Now, you may uh, think that uh, the go-to scriptures for um Today might would be Proverbs 31's Ode to, to Moms, uh, First Samuel, uh, chapter 1's story about Hannah, her desire to be a mom, maybe even the story of Mary, how God chose her to bring Jesus into the world. But, but I think um, this passage is brilliantly written. Um, one of the most brilliant passages in all the Bible um, is Paul's uh, opening words to his protege Timothy in what would prove to be his final book of the Bible, his final letter to the churches, and specifically this one is to a young pastor named Timothy. So on first glance, it will seem obvious that we're looking at this text today because of the mention of two women who had a significant impact on Timothy's faith, but I think their mention really ties into the text's deeper meaning in the message that Paul is wanting to preach, and he, and he uses this opportunity to kind of uh, to really hit that home. So if you have your Bibles open, 1 Timothy, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 follow along with me, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father in Jesus Christ our Lord, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as I did without ceasing. Uh, I remember you in my prayers night and day, Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your mother or in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded it is in you also. Therefore, I'm reminded. I'm reminding you to stir up the gift of God which is in you, or literally fan the flame of the gift of God through the laying on of hands, as in Timothy was ordained into this ministry. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or of self control or of grace. So, in the middle of this passage, Paul gives a shout out to Timothy's mom and his grandmother, both. Jewish women. Timothy was half Jewish. His dad was a Gentile, but his mom and his mom's family were Jewish. He gives a shout out to these women, Eunice and Lewis, uh, who believed in the Messiah. They believed that God was going to send the Messiah, just like He promised in the Old Testament, and they believed in that promise. And then Jesus shows up, and they hear about it a few years after the fact because they were from the Mediterranean part. They were from the uh, the the parts uh, near Greece or modern day Greece. Uh, so they hear uh, about God's Messiah, how He came, how Jesus was His. Name name how he died on the cross for our sins they put their faith in Jesus as God's Messiah and they teach that to this young boy Timothy this was probably uh, when Timothy was just about uh, 10 or 15 years old he's just a young man at this point so about 10 years before he was uh, pastoring a church early in his 20's he would have heard about Jesus as God's Messiah and would have put his faith in that that, that plan of salvation so Timothy raised to be Jewish raised to believe in God's Messiah uh, believed that Jesus was that Messiah, all because of the influence of his mom and, and, and of his grandmother. Uh, and, and Paul, and this is what makes this passage so brilliant, Paul chooses to leverage uh, this, this uh, awareness that he has of Timothy's mom and of Timothy's grandmother, Paul chooses to leverage that to punctuate a message that he's wanting to bring Timothy, that he wants to bring to us. And he uses this 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 fact that Timothy was raised in the faith to kind of really hit home on something, and I think it makes today a perfect day to talk about this. So in chapter 1, verse 1, the opening line, Paul grounds the entire letter. Paul puts a banner over this letter um, using the phrase, the promise of life. You, you see that in verse number 1. He says... Uh, Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God according to the promise of life. So really the theme of this letter is, hey, Paul wants us to know this is God's promise to you or this is God's plan for you. This is God's will for you that you might have life and have it abundantly. And and I want to talk to y'all, Paul's saying, I want to talk to you all about the promise of life. And what makes this really important is that this is Paul's last letter that he's going to write for the Bible. This is Paul's last uh, contribution to the Scriptures. So it's sort of like a a passing of the torch. Um, And Timothy is his protege. Timothy is the next in line to carry the next generation forward as Paul has been this foundation early on. Timothy's going to take the next generation uh, and and lead the next group of pastors the next group of churches. So Paul is wanting to tell Timothy, hey, this is the heart of my ministry. I've been driven by this promise that God made us, this promise of life that God has given to us. I've been driven by that, and I want you to be driven by that, and I want to help you understand what that promise promise is all about so this letter is really formatted and divided up in sections where Paul is going to highlight uh, the different points or the different pillars of his ministry that fall under this category the promise of life so if you were to split this chapter up there's really three major sections where Paul talks about salvation and the mission we're on, and the scripture that we are led by. He writes about the impact that salvation has on everyone, every individual believer. And then he talks about how we're all on a mission to reach more people with that same message. And, and then he talks about how the scripture is our ground and our guide and will keep us from going to the left or the right or falling astray with the spirit of the age. So if you were to do a study on 2 Timothy, uh, the theme is the promise of life. The idea is that Paul is wanting to get Give Timothy kind of the, the the bullet point, the checklist of what his ministry should be about, and the three main points are the salvation that we have individually, the mission we're all on, and the scripture that we all follow. Now he writes um, all of this under the banner of the promise of life. And Paul served God, and we know how he was willing to give everything up and did give everything up to uh, bring this message and to preach preach this promise uh, to as many people as he could that he had experienced it and he felt so passionate about making it known to more people, and we hear him encouraging Timothy to do that very same thing and to make that same message known. So now, if you've been with us recently, we've been studying the book of Genesis, uh, and, and we hear this phrase, promise of life, and how God is promising to save us and to restore our lives and bring them back from whatever sin might have done to them. We hear that, and if you've been with us for Genesis or if you know the story of Genesis, you know that God has been promising to redeem the world since the very day that it fell into sin, right? That God God never allowed the world to hang in the balance. God never allowed mankind to sit back and say, I wonder what's going to happen next. Because from the very moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God was there not to scold them or to judge them or condemn them. Yes, he told them the consequences, but what did God do? From the moment they sinned, God showed up to say, listen, y'all, it's a mess, it's going to be a mess, but I promise you, I've got a plan. It's pretty incredible to think about how God showed up the moment they sinned, the moment they should have died and been judged. God shows up and says, listen, I am going to make you a promise. It's going to work out. And, And remember how he framed that promise? Remember how he dressed that promise up and presented it? He speaks to the serpent, to the devil, who is scoffing at the mess that he just made and how he tempted them into sin and that they fell for it. Remember the promise that God made to the devil? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be this tension, but God starts out, and he makes this promise, and he he introduces this promise from the angle that, hey, Adam and Eve, specifically Eve, she is going to bring a Savior into the world who is going to right their wrongs, who's going to undo what they just introduced. Now, we don't know if God had already had the talk with Adam and Eve about, hey, how all this is going to work out, right? But we know back in chapter 1, he told them to fill the earth. He told them to multiply for the glory of God. And Adam, Adam, having already understood that family is important, Adam instantly recognizes that the family unit is even more important after the fall or in the fallout of sin. It wouldn't just be a way of bringing glory to God to fill the earth with more images of God because now God was going to one day use one of their children to undo the curse that they had caused to fall on the world. Isn't that incredible? So God had already told them, hey, family's important. But now it's even more important because he says to Eve, he says to Adam, you are going to have a child. And one day down the line, one day one of your descendants is going to reverse the curse that you are responsible for. So all of a sudden they realize, hey, family's a big deal because we are going to raise up a generation. And after generations from now, one of our descendants is going to be tasked with undoing and saving the world that we just immersed into sin—they had no idea of the virgin birth. They had no idea of the incarnation. They had no idea how God was going to do this. They just knew that God made a promise that somehow, some way, through Eve, through their family, He was going to save the world. Adam, apparently aware of biology enough, uh, made this proclamation as soon as God finished talking. So Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Specifically, she would be the mother of the the seed that would bring about salvation to the world. That through Eve, somewhere along the line, a Savior was going to come. So Adam named his wife, or he called his wife, because again, they were just starting out. Eve, because that name captured the promise that God made. The promise would literally come through Eve and her daughters. Now, maybe you've noticed this before, but this is why, and, and I think you, you, you might all kind of sit down, and you might all kind of gasp and think, wow, that this actually, this really is true. If you've ever noticed, this is why the Bible, the Old Testament particularly, particularly, the Bible contains so many stories about babies being born. Maybe you've noticed this before, maybe you've just thought, hey, that's just, you know, this incidental. If you read the Old Testament, with any given chapter, you can, if you read the narrative books, so Genesis, Exodus, the, the books of Samuel or Kings, and all the ones that tell the stories, you can make a safe bet that any chapter you read in those historical books are going to feature either a baby being born, a great battle of some kind, or a mighty miracle. You can go through and color code the, every chapter of the Old Testament that tells a story, that's a narrative, that, that you know, it's telling a, a historical account, and every chapter is in one of those categories. Um, In fact, 14 of 50 chapters in Genesis feature at least one baby being born. Some of them feature multiple babies being born. Some all at the same time because there's multiple sets of twins. Now, that's a pretty big deal, right? 14 of 50 chapters feature uh, a birth uh, of a baby. Now, the thing that keeps the plot moving in Genesis is the promise of a child. So every time a child is born, they all stand up straight and think, wow, could this be the one? Or if it's not the one, it's the next in line that's going to get us closer to the one. So they were very, very sacred about the birth of children. And we've we've heard God's word to Eve, and in fact, we're familiar how God had a similar promise, and he continued the promise down the line to Abraham and Sarah, who came years later. He says to them, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, as in through y'all. He's funneling down. He started out Adam and Eve, and as all the world's getting populated from all the different people that came from them, he focuses in on Abraham, and he says, Abraham, you and Sarah, y'all are the family I'm going to bring this Savior through. And again, again, it gets narrower and narrower. So we all read in the Old Testament so many stories of, of, of childbirth being such a big deal. Exodus chapter 1 opens up and there's uh, the story of babies being spared from the Egyptian plot because we know it's a big deal. Hey, if if one of our children gets taken or gets killed, that could be the one that's going to be the next in line. So they were very, very, very concerned. About that. Um, one of the anchor stories of Judges, a detailed, detailed account about the birth of Samson. Um, Samuel starts out with a, a very a awesome story about how Samuel was born, and, and tucked in between all those major stories about Israel starting and the conquest and the kingdom growing is a story of a young Moabite woman. Who loses her husband, is wondering, trying to find a place to call her own, doesn't want to go back to the pagans of her ancestors, and she seeks refuge in Israel. Uh, and, and of course, the story of Ruth um, is so, such an important part of the story of Israel because this Moabite woman marries into the family of Judah. And y'all know how that story goes. The story of Ruth says that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went in into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore Son, but not just any son. Uh, The Bible says that Naomi prophesied, they prophesied over this baby because this was, again, the the promise that God was going to send a redeemer that through this family, right, it was Adam, it was Abraham, and it's even narrower now. Now it's Ruth and Boaz. Hey, God is going to keep his promise. God has not forgotten about the promise that he made to Adam, to Abraham. And now he says to Ruth and Boaz, hey, y'all are part of this story. It's a big deal, isn't it? It says that In the next slide, it says that Naomi had a boy named Obed, and of course he was the father of Jesse, and of course he was the father of David. So if you trace all these stories down, they all lead up to the introduction of of King David, who is the picture of the one promised to, to Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah. And one of the highlights of David's story is that God tells him that it's his house, it's his family, that is, gonna, that is chosen to really bring this promise home. That again, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Ruth and Boaz, and now God's focusing even more narrow on King David and remember the promise that God made to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are revealed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring... After you, you shall come who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, notice the similarity in all these verses that we've looked at way back in Genesis chapter 3. Offspring is going to save the world, your offspring, then again to Abraham, now to David. So, the promise of life is continually punctuated and, and, and underscored and highlighted and emphasized. And if you read the books of prophecy, the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets, they again, they're all the time talking about the promise of a child that's going to be born, the promise of a baby that's going to change the world. The prophets make this connection again and again. How the child will fulfill God's promise that he made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and Sarah, and now to David. We we know these verses from Christmas time. Isaiah says the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we will call him God with us, or Emmanuel. For under us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And again, all these amazing titles. And again, this is through the birth of a baby. That was God's promise from the very beginning. So it goes without saying, the promise of eternal life for all was directly tied to the promise of a certain individual's life, as in this Savior who was going to be born one day would bring the promise of life to all of us. So that's the reason. That's the reason why your Bible has so much real estate dedicated to the birth of all these babies along the way, because all of them pointed to the means through which God was going to save the world. And isn't that how the New Testament opens up? Think about it. The New Testament opens up, if you read the story, the narrative story, it opens up with a spotlight on a young woman named Mary, a daughter of Eve, of Sarah and Ruth, of the house and lineage of Adam, of Abraham and David. So the Bible celebrates motherhood hand in hand with celebrating childbirth because they're so obviously a package deal. So, when Paul puts this banner over his farewell address... When Paul says, I'm going to title my last letter, The Promise of Life, he's calling back to this promise that God made to Eve, this promise that God made to countless other women along the way, that they're bringing a child into the world was an exclusive and unique way that women and moms get to participate in and relate to the redemption plan. The promise of eternal life would forever be tied to the gift that is in or the gift that is every life. Do you see the connection? Do you see the through line? Now, I don't know about y'all, but I think the reason why Paul gives special recognition to Lewis and Eunice, Timothy's mom and grandmother is because he's calling back to how God brought about the plan of salvation. Lewis and Eunice may not have been in the lineage of Eve and Sarah and Ruth and Mary, but they took their role in the redemption story just as seriously. Do you hear that? That even though these women weren't in the who's who of the Old Testament, even though they weren't part of that sacred line, they took their role in the story as if it was as big of a deal. They knew the gift of life was not an insignificant thing. They knew that God created all life in his image. They knew that God ordained every life for his glory. And they knew that God wills that all know him and experience the promise of life, the full and eternal life he wants to give us. So you know why the Bible gives so much attention to childbirth? It's because no child enters this world in a corner. It's an event for every child to be born. No matter how many people are in the room or how many people know about uh, right around the development and birth of a child. For the mom, right, you ladies can attest to this, it literally takes over your entire life from gestation to, to, to the immediate aftermath and most of you for the rest of your lives. The point is, life doesn't begin quietly. Life is a big deal. And nobody knows that more than the one who bears the life, Right? Paul is wanting to bring attention to the promise of life, the gift of salvation, and he does so by appealing to the special role that women literally play in bringing life into the world and nurturing those lives, all of our lives. So Paul turns to Timothy and he says, Listen, buddy, I don't want it to ever be lost on you, this gift that you've received from God. As you've been reared and nurtured, as Christ has given to you the redemption. And, and Timothy could take even farther because he had been ordained into ministry. The apostle Paul himself had laid hands on him, passing along this gift of ministry. Did, do you see how this chapter is really about Paul saying to Timothy, pass along this gift that you have received. So, through such an awesome story, through such awesome means, because people took serious their position in your life, from his mom his grandmother to Paul as his spiritual leader. So Paul tells Timothy, my vision I'm casting over you, my call over you is that you would fan the flame of God's gift. He reminds Timothy of the women in his life, what they had done. He reminds Timothy about how he had been chosen and ordained in the ministry by the same idea, uh, by the same idea, and he was to called to proclaim this same message. And, and I think, I think that, again, Paul's uh, he's using a lot of things here to kind of tie into his message. When Paul says that you have received this gift through the laying on of hands in verse 6, I think you can take that multiple ways. Of course, it refers to Paul laying his hands on Timothy in a spiritual sense as we do at ordinations. But I, I think it also speaks to how Timothy had been held and carried by the hands of the women mentioned in verse 5 right? That, that his mom, his grandma, they had held him since he was a baby and they passed along him that gift of life that they had. So Timothy had been ordained in this multifaceted way from his rearing, from his childhood, from his raising to his spiritual awakening and calling. The gift of life, the promise of life was all over Timothy in more ways than one. The fingerprints of God and the people that God used were all over Timothy. Now listen, everyone does not have Timothy's story. Everyone doesn't have a story like Timothy where they were, they were both raised in it and then called into it. But I think it's good that all of us think about our stories. Think about the road that your life has taken. Think about the way that your life has played out. And give God thanks for those that he's used to impact you for the, with the faith. Specifically with regard to those who fanned the flame because the reason why you have received this gift is because somebody fanned the flame that God put in them. Somebody passed the torch to you. For most of us, it's maybe, it is maybe it is our mom, it is our grandmother, it is our dads or our grandfathers. But, but in general, traditionally, right, uh, the, the role that women play in our lives, it, it's, it's obviously uh, one that we're all aware of. But even if you weren't raised biologically by your biological mom or by your biological family, you were adopted or raised by someone else, you still know how important that nurture is. In some ways, this message could even serve as a postscript to the series that we just completed about origin stories because not this isn't about how the world got like it is and how things came into being but this is about how you got here as in how your story has played out how did you make it to where you are right now because people took serious their role in your life somebody, be it your mom your grandmother, your dad, your grandpa somebody in your family or someone who adopted you into their family, someone that loved you and nurtured you showed you the way, right? That none of us just get here on our own. None of us just wake up with the revelation of who we are called to be and who God is. That it's something that is passed along, right? The more we remember how we got the gift, the more aware we are that this flame must continue to be fanned. Down in verse 13 and 14, Paul says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, and faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The good thing which was committed to you literally was placed in your heart. Some translations might use the word deposit, as in money into the bank. Some translations might use the word entrusted. So he's talking about how Timothy had received this gift because people fanned the flame, passed along the the faith, that he says this good thing you have received that has been committed to you, as in people were intentional about giving it to you. He says keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So he tells Timothy that you have been entrusted, that you have had a gift entrusted to you, and we know the idea of stewardship is all over the Bible, that we have been given something that's valuable, and we are Obligated, we are expected, we are called to do something with it. All of us who have been loved and been given the gift of life and been allowed to realize the promise of abundant and eternal life, we are so fortunate because, this, because there are many who don't get this opportunity. There are many who don't get to where you are for different reasons. That's just the reality it is, that, that this world exists in. So we've heard Paul talk about this promise of life that God has made and how it's through the family that he has continued to fan the flame of this promise. And it's through people like Paul in their ministries who's become a part of our lives. We see all the different angles that God has taken to reach people and to save us, ultimately through Jesus, but using all the people in the world that that listen to him. So i got to ask you, how are you guarding the gift that's been entrusted to you because there has been a gift placed in your heart. It may have come to you like it came to Timothy through someone in your immediate family who literally held you in their hands from the moment that you were born. It could be from someone that, that raised you from the moment that you came into this world. It could be through some other means. I don't know your stories, but I know this. If you're here today, right, that your story has somehow led you to the place where you know or you've heard about the God who loves you, the faith that you can have in him that can change your life, that can bring you to new life. So you've been entrusted with this gift that it's not an insignificant thing, that it's not a small thing, that your life is so important and that God has brought you to this place where you've been entrusted with this gift, this incredible gift. So how are you guarding that gift? As in, how are you preserving it, taking care of it, making the most of it, understanding the value of it? How are you fanning the flame of that gift? As in you're continuing to spread the fire that God has started and continued to float, uh, flame in your direction. Let's go ahead and take this in a more spiritual sense because, of course, we know the direction, that's the direction God wants to take all of our lives from not just what we've been raised in our families but to those that God has used to bring us to faith through the church and through ministries. We've been given this gift of life so that we might come to know the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. And and maybe you weren't raised like Timothy to believe from childhood. Maybe somewhere along the way you came under the teaching of Jesus because someone found you. And that's most likely the story, that someone found you and brought you to Jesus. Jesus. Now, again, it'd be great that everyone be raised in a household where they know Jesus from the very beginning, right? Or they hear about him and then put their faith in him in a way along the way. But if you were raised the way God wishes, everyone could be brought up. That's great. But a lot of people come to Jesus because people like you, people like that, go and find them. I'm reminded of the story of Philip. And I love, he's one of the most underscored, underrated, underappreciated heroes of the Bible, the Bible tells us this in John 1. The next day, when Jesus is on in his ministry, Jesus decides to go to Galilee and he found Philip. So we don't know how this happened, but he meets Philip one day and he says, Philip, apparently Philip was looking for the Messiah. Hey, I am the Messiah, and it just happened, right? He put his faith in Jesus, he follows Jesus, he joins the team. So Jesus finds Philip. It was a supernatural situation. Maybe Philip had been raised in a household of faith. Maybe he was looking for the Messiah, and guess what? The Messiah finds him, and he finds the Messiah, and he's there for life. So he says to Philip, follow me, and Philip says, of course. And then very next couple verses, the Scripture says that Philip goes and finds a friend of his named Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, we found him. And when he says him, they know who he's talking about because him was the long-awaited Messiah. So Jesus finds Philip, and then Philip says, hey, i got to go find my friend because I want my friend to know what I know. He says, Nathaniel, we found him. If you read the Gospels, Philip was always finding people and always bringing people to Jesus because he was grateful and he was conscious of how Jesus had found him. That's what fanning the flame means. Later on in John chapter 12, among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So hey, Philip, we've heard you're someone that that is good about introducing people to Jesus. So hey, can you do that for us? if you read the whole story, it says that Philip goes and finds Jesus and introduces these Greeks to Jesus that's how it's supposed to work to understand the gift that we have the fan in fanning that flame means we're going to always be listening and sensitive to those who haven't been as blessed as we have to know the things that we know maybe from the very earliest of days Timothy came into ministry at an early age but that didn't mean he had uh, that he had a long time to figure this out As in Paul is urging him, hey, Timothy, I know you're just a kid. I know there's a hundred other preachers I could be pointing, putting my hands on and saying, hey, go and do it. Timothy, I want you to be the guy that leads this charge. And, And you could say, well, Timothy's young. Doesn't he have a lot of years to figure this out? Aren't there better people? Aren't there more qualified people? Aren't there more, you know, X, Y, and Z? Timothy is urged by Paul to take this serious from the very beginning. So often this is how it works out for many who come to faith. We find Jesus or we put our faith in Jesus, but we never take things farther and deeper and more devoted because well, we just leave that for the older folks. With all respect to you older folks, right? But, but there's room for all of us to serve and grow and, and, and get deeper. But a lot of us, we say, well, you know, it's not really a big deal for me to do it because somebody else is doing it for me or somebody else is doing it. And one day I'll take my place serious in this whole chain of events. Paul tells Timothy there's no time to waste. And in verse 7, he emphasizes the urgency with this line. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control or of a sound mind. Now, when he says fear there, he's talking about cowardice. He's talking about not having the nerve to step up and step out and do what God's called you to do. Now we often don't realize that we're being cowards because our flesh has a good convincing way of talking us down and talking us out of doing what we should do. Our flesh is really good and the devil is really good at making all of us think, hey, you don't have to do that. That's a big, you know, that's more than you can handle. That's beyond your qualification. Uh, That's somebody else's responsibility. I mean, you've got other stuff going on. You don't want to miss out on that, do you? Our flesh is really good at saying, hey, You can't do that or you you shouldn't worry about that. Let somebody else do that and you worry about it when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, way down the road, right? Our flesh is good at making us cowards in the faith. But the opposite of this kind of fear, the opposite of this cowardice is boldness. And this is what the Bible is calling every one of us to possess and take hold of. If you read the book of Acts, you see this is the mark of true believers from the very earliest of days that walk in the Spirit, who are fanning the flame, who are guarding the gift and entrusting it and, and or entrusted to them and, and fanning it to more. We are commanded to pray like they prayed. In Acts 4.29, when they are worried about all the things that might work against them, they pray, Lord, grant your servants boldness. Because they know that's the secret. That we might live and take a stance of boldness. Now what does boldness look like? What does a life of boldness look like? What does a life that is guarding the gift and fanning the flame look like? What will our lives look like if we are walking in the fullness of the promise of eternal life? Well, Paul gives Timothy three words to summarize the promise of the Christian life that's available to all of you. And those are listed for us in that that verse. Power, love, and self-control power, love, or, or you could replace self-control with grace. I want to run through these quickly and, and I want to make sure we know what they mean. I want to make sure you know what God has promised you and what you can take hold of as a follower and as a believer of, of Jesus. The promise of life means that God has given us a means to a life of power. Now, power does not refer to worldly authority or worldly power. It does not refer to having a lot of money, having a lot of esteem, having a lot of control. That is not what power is when the Bible talks about power. That's what the world means when it talks about power. The Bible actually commands that if you ever have that kind of power, you should leverage it for those beneath you. You should lay it down for for the sake of others. That's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the church because we desire to take hold of a different kind of power, power that's exclusive to Christians. Jesus promised that every believer, and that, 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 that's an that's a emphasis, every believer has been promised this kind of power, or at least access to it. Once you're saved, Jesus made this promise to the church. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what is the promise of God, the promise of life? It is the power from God. If you read Acts, we see the disciples living out this kind of power. Again, not in a worldly sense. They're not in charge of anything. Rather, they're being arrested and being, their lives are being risked all the time. Many of them die because of their faith. Yet they never bat an eye, and they are always confident because they are living off of and fueled by this power from God. They are fearless of dying because they are full of God's power. Acts 4 33 describes this community of the early church. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. So they were testifying of God's spirit within them, the resurrection spirit in them. They were testifying with the power of God in their lives, and they had the grace of God on them and in them. So when we read about the the Christian community, they were full of extraordinary power. And if you see what they did with that power, they were extremely generous. They were going to the ends of the earth to build the kingdom up. So what does it mean to have spiritual power? Again, this is not about miracle working. This is not about, hey, I call whatever I want into existence because I'm all about me. That's not the kingdom. That's not Christianity. Spiritual power is that you are able to follow Jesus to the most unlikely of places, accomplishing the most impossible of tasks, reaching the most unexpected of people. That if you want spiritual power, and if you have spiritual power, that means you're going to follow Jesus, and you'll be able to follow Jesus to places you never thought you would end up, to situations you never thought you would come into, doing things and serving in opportunities in situations where you never imagined yourself being. But because you were obedient to God and full of his power, you ended up there, and you were able to be used by God in an extraordinary way. That if you have spiritual power, that means you can follow Jesus wherever he leads you to go and you can accomplish things that were otherwise considered impossible to do and you are gonna reach the most unexpected people and that's what it's all about, reaching people. How do you fan the flame? You follow Jesus wherever he tells you to go. You accomplish the impossible task so that the world stands back and says, hey, how did they do that? You reach people and you spread the fire that God has started in you. Just like you know that when you have been raised by a family that has given you everything they could give you, you feel a sense of responsibility, don't you? You feel the weight of those expectations. And it's not because they put them on you. Now, maybe some do. But that expectation, that that burden of expectations on you, it's not because people stand over you and say to you necessarily, you should do this. It's because you feel an accountability of that gift that's been given to you, don't you? In the same sense, with this great power from God, we have a great responsibility to serve him, don't we? We have been given access to power from God. We've also been given access to a life of love. That's the promise of love. Now, I, you have heard this sermon a hundred times. It never gets old, but it's always convicting. 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8, says, Beloved, let us love one another. John does not feel like he needs to explain why we should love each other, but he says, okay, I'll do it if you need it. Let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, because if you know God, you know love, and if you claim you don't know love or you can't love, then you don't know God, because if you've ever met God, you've met him because of his love. I don't care how good they preach, I don't care how many, how great they are, how rich they are, how accomplished they are, if they don't have love, they don't have God. John says, hey, if we've met the Lord, we know what his love is all about because the only reason we got here is because he loved us. The love that gives you freedom to forgive and saves you from bitterness and hurt. Now think about what you learned from your families. And I've learned this from my mom. I've learned this from my family. But, and, and I think mothers are the best to teach children this because mothers have a heart that is willing to forgive their children of anything. That doesn't mean children should do what they do, but we, do, we still do it, don't we? Because we're kids and we don't always know the best or we don't always listen to the right advice, right? But mothers have a gift of forgiveness because they are driven by love and they are so quick to forgive because they are driven by that love they have for their children, Right? You know what love does for you? Love gives you the ability to be used by God and you cannot be used by God if you cannot forgive those like God has forgiven you. You cannot be used by God if you have a bitter, hateful heart. But if you know the love of God, then you have a freedom from that bitterness and from that hatefulness. You know, moms, you all love so greatly that forgiving us is never a question for you because just like God, your love overcomes even our greatest flaws. And that's why Peter echoes John. And Peter says, Earnestly, above all else, keep on loving each other earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, Peter, are we just want people to get by with their sins. Peter's just saying, hey, we want to cover these sins. We want to overcome these sins. And the only way we're going to overcome these sins is by loving people. Because we believe that love has the power not only to, over, to cover the sin, but to break the chains of sin. Because the only reason you ever stop sinning is because God loved you so much that he showed you there's a better way. If we all just live by that simple rule, how much easier would life be? How much lighter would our burdens be if we just live by this verse? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You know what earnest means? Earnest means whenever you are fed up with all that life has done to you, you just keep on doing it because you know you have to. You know you want to. Of course... Moms, you know what that's like, but all of us know what, know, what, know what that's like, don't we? Keep on, and the only thing that's able for you to, to, to make you earnest and resilient is love. God has given us a life of power, a life of love, and lastly, a life of self-control. One of the greatest things that we learn from our parents is the difference between right and wrong. The reason why they want us to do right is because they want what's best for us. God is no different. That comes from God. God is not here to take our fun away. God is here to keep us in a life of joy and peace. And that's why God says no to some things. That's why God says that's not good for you. Through the grace of Jesus, we don't have to live under the bondage of sin. We can have self-control. Romans 6, 11 says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So why would I do that? Why would I lie? Why would I sin? Why would I lust? Why would I cheat? Why would I say that hateful thing? Why would I think that hateful thing? I'm dead to sin. When sin rears its head up in you and says, hey, this is what you should do, why would you listen to that? That sin is dead. That sin has been forgiven and put in the grave. Why would you listen to it? Well, it's just what my flesh told me to do. But have you listened to what your spirit is telling you to do? Because that's the part of you that's alive we listen to that voice, don't we? And yet he rears its head up again and again and again. But you've been saved from that old person. You've been delivered from that old way. So why would we listen to that one that is dead? Why not consider ourselves alive to God? Romans six fourteen says, For sin will no longer have dominion over you. You are not under those old laws anymore. You are under the grace of God. And if you're under grace, you are being raised up by grace. God has given us the ability. The promise of life and the provision of life gives us freedom from sin, gives us a life full of love, and gives us a life driven by power. This is the promise of life. This is the gift of life that we have and enjoy from multiple sources, being raised and nurtured into it. And unto it. So let me ask you again. How are you guarding the gift that has been entrusted to you? How are you fanning the flame of that gift? Are you living in the power and the love and the grace that comes from having the gift of eternal life? You know how we got here today? You know how you got here today? Because you were raised, either raised in this faith or reached by someone who was. You know how great a gift this opportunity is. You know that it is something that was given to you, not of our deserving. You know all those who carried you to get you here, who laid their hands on you, who loved you to bring you here. We have received the great promise having such a great privilege in this life. So can we spend today, and you should do this every day, but maybe today especially when you're with your families or when you're trying to think on these things, can you spend today thanking God and thanking those he's put in your life and those he used to bring you here? Not in this building, but to where you are in life. Thanking How we are guarding and fanning this gift, how are we living this gift out? As we've learned today, our place in this world is not accidental. Our lives are a gift from God meant to bring glory to God. The Holy Spirit wants to awaken this gift that we've been given. He wants to fan that flame that we ourselves might spread the good news and live a life full of this promise. If we consider daily how we got here, we will be driven and motivated and reminded to make the most of it. So to quote an old hymn, if we stand in these promises, if we stand in these promises of life, we will walk in them full of power, full of love, and full of grace. Paul says, Timothy, remember how you got here? Your mama, your grandma, they loved you, they taught you what was right, and they introduced you to Jesus. Jesus. And remember a couple years ago when I led you to Jesus, I laid my hands on you and I appointed you to this ministry. Timothy, you've got a wide open life in front of you. You know how you got here. Make the most of it. And I don't care if you're nine or 99. If you've got life in front of you, that's life to make the most of. Because there are some, there's somebody that doesn't get that opportunity you've gotten. So ask yourself today, how am I guarding? How am I fanning this flame? Is my life full of God's power? Is my life full of God's love? And is my life full of the grace that gives me that freedom that I need from sin? If you know Jesus, then you have access to these promises. If you don't know Jesus, I think you understand today that he's invited you and he wants you to know him. And all, he's gotta, all you got to do is say, Jesus, I want to know you. Like those, said, like those men that said to Philip, I want to see Jesus. If you want to see Jesus, he's already here for you to meet. And all you got to do is put your faith in him and follow him. And you can have a life full of power and love and his grace. And your life will be changed and better forever. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this great and awesome opportunity you've given us today to reflect on how we got here and to look forward at what you've called us to do with our lives Lord, thank you for uh, this perspective that you've given us today and and thank you for the the opportunity we have on this day, especially to consider how we got here and what you've used and who you've used to bring us here. But Lord, let us not just look back, but let us look forward and, and, and ask ourselves, are we guarding this gift? Are we fanning this flame? Are we walking in these promises or realizing these promises? Lord, I pray that we would all consider, is our life full of your power? Are we driven by your kingdom? Is, your, is our life full of your love? Is our life full of that self-control and grace overcoming sin? If we have a weakness in any one of these areas or if we just haven't always considered how we got here and haven't always paid it forward, Lord, would you let this moment of invitation invite all of us to take that stand, take that stand and put our faith on your promises and to look forward and vow to make the most of the life that we have been, such a blessed, have been so blessed to receive. Many don't get this chance. Many don't make it this far. Let us make the most of the journey that we still have to come. Thank you for what you've done. We look forward to what you're still going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.